Good morning. Please turn your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 16. Dearly beloved congregation, Mount Vernon Baptist Church, listen to this sentence. You will not know the joy of God so long as you think that God exists for you. You will not know the joy of God so long as you think that God exists for you. You exist for God at His pleasure, by His command. And if we slowly learn to live like we, you, I, you exist for God, then you can find joy in knowing that the God of the universe is pleased to improve your existence for His own glory, for the fame of His own name. One pastor shared... Why should people who have witnessed so spectacular a display of grace and power of God slip so easily into muttering and complaining and slide so gracelessly into listless disobedience? Speaking of our text, he said, the answer lies in the fact that many of them see God as existing to serve them. He served them in the Exodus. He served them when he provided clean water. Now, in Exodus 16, he must serve not only their needs, but their appetites, too. Otherwise, they are entirely prepared, it seems, to abandon him. While Moses has been insisting to Pharaoh that the people need to retreat into the desert in order to serve God, in order to worship God, The people themselves think God exists to serve them. They've got it flipped exactly on its head. And I wonder today if subconsciously, if we gather having that truth flipped exactly on its head and needing God's grace to flip it back around. We exist to serve God and we will find our greater joy in this. And I must say from the onset of this sermon this morning that I, as your pastor, am, like the Apostle Paul said, the chief of sinners in the things that I am to exhort today. While I open the Word of God before you, I am not standing over you morally, but I'm standing with you in my great need for sanctification. Interpreting the narrations of the Old Testament set 3,500 years ago on the front end of the writing of God's eternal Bible. Interpreting it requires principles. A few should be listed from the start. To interpret the Old Testament rightly means to interpret it in light of the New Testament, which means there's continuity and discontinuity. To interpret a text like Exodus 16, We must think about 1 Corinthians 10, where it explicitly says that these set examples for us to follow in our own sanctification. 
there are types and shadows to see and interpret in light of the Messiah now come Christ Jesus our Lord. There was them looking to the Messiah based on a promise as old as the fall from the Garden of Eden that one day the Messiah would come and crush the head of our ancient foe. There was looking to the Messiah and for us there's looking back to the cross that the Messiah hung on for us. There is on the one hand a danger in moralistic preaching but on the other there is no danger in gospel morals. Now is there? There is a danger in over-spiritualizing a text, but not in simply spiritualizing a text. And so as I think of all these things in this text that we're just about to read, on balance, I'm reminded of four words from the book of James. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Or to put it in the language of Exodus 16, in verse 9, Come near before the Lord. Come near before the Lord. Come near before the Lord. And so today, with the help of God Almighty, we will see the sanctifying instruction found in Exodus 16, verses 1 to 36, that will help us to come near before the Lord, to draw near to God. And if you wanted to follow along in this text, for those of you that like order, The sermon in a sentence could be summarized as follows. Come near to God each day and on Sunday. A very simple sentence. Come near to God each day and on Sunday. Hear now the word of the Lord from Exodus 16, verses 1 to 36. The text says, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling, grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, 
I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with the bread with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 13. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till morning, till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Now verse 22. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given, given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the six days he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested, rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt." And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40, 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. 
May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto the hearers. We see in verses 1 to 12 that we should come near to God when we've sinned. We see in verses 13 to 21 that we should come near to God every day. And we see in verses 22 to 36 that we should come near to God, especially on the Lord's Day. First, come near to God when you've sinned. We all do. We all sin. The issue is not if we've sinned, but if we are mindful of our ongoing effort against it. In no small part, when we gather together, we are reminded, especially through the prayer of confession and assurance of pardon, of our ongoing effort against sin, and that we've been redeemed from sin, and that we will one day have rest from sin, all of the above. But in this instance, the people set out as a congregation from an oasis, Elam, and paused as a congregation before the Lord at the wilderness of sin, probably connected with Sinai in language, no relation to the common noun sin that I'm currently talking about, so don't be confused by that. The wilderness of sin stood between Elam and Mount Sinai. It had been one month for them since they departed from Egypt. They had experienced God's supernatural work of deliverance, but now, alas, they grumble. And they grumble, and they grumble some more. They direct their grumbling at their leaders. However, as the text bears out, their real grumble runs up the flowchart all the way to God. Their real grumble is against God. You know, this always helps us in our coming near to God. Now, doesn't it? It helps us when we realize afresh that our grumbling is sin not just against other people, and not just against those that seek to lead us, but against the Lord God himself. By parallel, King David, when he had sexually sinned, he stated in his repentance that he really hadn't sinned against man or against Uriah or Bathsheba or the others, but primarily against the Lord himself when he said, against you alone have I sinned. It wasn't that the sin was alone against God. It was that the main infraction was against the Holy One who is God because we all sin and God does not. And in our pursuit of holiness, we recognize that when we sin, whatever the sin may be, that our sin is primarily an infraction against our holy God. You know, leaders ought not always be followed. But your chosen leaders, which is a big choice for you to make when you're trying to find a church, trying to figure out who will elder you and shepherd you, whomever that is, they should be given the benefit of the doubt in terms of 1 Timothy 5. For they have a part to play in your sanctification. And they have been set apart for a biblical office. The Bible says that it would be of no joy to you for you to make their job a burden. We need to embrace and esteem those who rightly bring the word of God to us as an assembled people. Hebrews 13, 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, leaders are not infallible, so this council is not infallible either. However, on the main, exceptions withstanding, listen to leaders. Moses and Aaron were telling them the truth, and their grumbling on the main was not against their leaders, it was against God. I think they were probably afraid, don't you? I mean, hunger brings a certain amount of fear. Fear may be at bottom, 
It was the famous football coach, Vince Lombardi, that said that fatigue makes cowards of us all. But I'm convinced fear does. When we're afraid, we become cowardly. Our convictions are most tested, and sometimes we fail. They grumble out of hunger for filling. They grumble instead of crying out to the Lord in prayer. Their grumbling takes on a form that instructs us in how we can understand our own grumbling and overcome our own grumbling through God's help. Think about it. The God who had done so much for them now tests them with a little hunger, a little want. And at the first sign of want, at least some of them grumble instead of going to God in prayer. And their grumbling grows as if one voice from the congregation, at least a strong voice, is being heard. You know, grumbling never quite stays where it's first offered now, does it? Grumbling tends to spread, kind of like a disease. Their spirit of complaint grows to the point to where they over-romanticize what life was like in Egypt. Who had led them before in their former life, before their deliverance by God's mighty hand. And if we're not careful, we can do that too. We can over-romanticize what life was like before we received salvation. Before God began a good work in us that He will be faithful to complete. It is a perennial temptation for us to commit the exodus sin of grumbling. And we tend to romanticize our former lives and in that moment of fear and doubt, lest we say, we don't recount our slave labor, but instead we remember how full we thought we felt. Matthew Henry comments on this passage like this in a sentence. He says, Discontent magnifies what is past and vilifies what is present without regard to truth or reason. My Sunday school teacher so understood this as a sin of mine that the instruction was to memorize Philippians 2.14. It wasn't the longest sentence, but it was an important one. Maybe you're familiar with it. Do all things without grumbling. Do all things without grumbling. Matt learned to do all things without grumbling. And I'm continuing to learn that lesson. And I invite you to learn it with me. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling. Grumbling doesn't get a very good reputation in the economy of God. Grumblers and malcontents are listed amongst the rebellious toward God in the book of Jude. If grumbling has any connection with gossip, it's not talked about in the vice list of Romans chapter 1. Our grumbling misstates history, which makes sins destined to repeat themselves. Our sin gets directed at leaders who otherwise might be telling you the truth and who also are looked upon to shoulder it, and they should. Our grumbling looks at circumstances instead of looking to the Lord, as Hebrews says for us, to look to the author and finisher of our faith. Our want really is with the Lord, our provider and our healer. Our want is a test, verse 4 says. Like a, a test. Just a test. It's not that God intends to not 
help us through our current circumstance. It's that he intends for us to trust him when we're hungry and when we're in want. And this is a lifelong pursuit, is it not? Pursuit of holiness, a pursuit of sanctification. It's a needed test. So Moses gathers the assembly together, which actually has a connection through the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible with the word that we translate church over a hundred times in the New Testament. So when he gathers this assembly, there is a very clear word for the church to three and a half millennia later. And I think we can hear this word on its own terms from Exodus 16, 9. Come near to the Lord. Come near to the Lord because he's heard your sin of grumbling. He's heard it. It's not that someone else heard it. It's not that you heard it yourself with your spouse or with your friends. It's that God hears it. There is no secret hidden sin from God. He exposes everything, and that light is good. You know, God's traveling with them. He's in a cloud, our chapter says. And whether in want or in plenty, God is teaching them the secret to contentment. Like Philippians 4 says, to trust in God as the supplier of their need, whether in plenty or in want. Either way, the intimation is that life is going to have times where there's more and times when there's less. His emphasis for the first 12 verses is that believing Israel might, and if you look at verse 12, you'll see it afresh, they might know that He is the Lord, their God. Personal, Yahweh. Transcendent and eminent. Their personal God. And He's acted so personally toward them all along. But at the first, t- at the first sight of hunger, they grumble. Unbeliever, I want to say something to you this morning. I want to say that today you must come to know the Lord as your God. And this only comes through the new birth offered in Christ. He must do it. The Lord must do a work in you. You must come to know the Lord in this life in order to be with Him in the next. Heaven is not about toys so much as it is about the joys of His presence. That's a presence that you practice starting now. To be with the Lord is everything for the Christian. You're not different as an unbeliever than we are as believers in your sin. We sin and you sin, and we have that in common as sinners. It's why our complaints really don't stop flowing up the chart until they get to God, the sinless one. But there's a place that you are different. And it is that you are not trusting for God to forgive your sins the way that we are. You're trusting instead that because your sin is common to us all, then grace must be common to you also. But saving grace is anything but common. It's special. And saving grace is to be received, as the Lord taught us, by faith. Would you be freed from your burden of sin? We sing about it. There's power in the blood of Jesus. And we invite you today to trust in the Lord and His blood shed on your behalf and receive His free gift of salvation. And then, as a Christian, redeemed from your sin, you will have rest one day from 
the burden of sin, which is energy sucking. I mean, it just takes the energy out of us. It's, it's, it's a big fight. And in the meantime, you'll live mindful of this, this kind of low-grade awareness that we have as believers of sin and our ongoing battle against it. A uh, place in the Bible that might instruct you as a new believer that way would be Ephesians 6, where the New Testament frames the Christian's growth or sanctification in this way as a battle against sin. And the Christian is urged to put on the full armor of God. And the offensive weapon of the Christian is the Word of God, meted out with prayer. And so you're hearing the Word of God today. I'm attempting to preach the Word of God today. And I'd like for you to consider also the power of prayer as a remedy for grumbling or a substitute for grumbling. Jesus allocated the bread this way for us. During his wilderness hunger, he quoted back about these episodes from the earlier books of the Bible. And he said, man shall not live by bread alone or food alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. He appropriated those events for us in this way. That sustenance is not strictly physical food, but it's spiritual food, and that coming from God himself by his word. Now, it's already been said, but it bears repeating. Next Sunday, we're going to attempt to come near to God in corporate or, or congregational prayer at 1.30 in the afternoon. And we'd like to ask that you would Listen to us and prioritize to join us in corporate worship next Sunday at 1.30, if at all reasonable to do so. And prioritize to seek God, and this may be a stretch, but it's worth saying, to seek God not just for that day's petition, but in the battle against sin and in the journey of sanctification. Let's pray big lofty prayers to God, not as a subtle grumble, but as a glad triumph for what he has assured us he stands ready to supply whatever grace that you need to get you all the way to your eternal rest. Well, first, come to God when you've sinned. Bring it to him. Bring it to him. Some of you have a chronic issue with grumbling like I've expressed. Bring it to him and war against it. Do battle against it. It does great damage to the body of Christ to be a grumbler. And God has provided something for you. Secondly, is constituted in verses 13 to 21. Simply summarized, come near to God every day, each day, morning by morning, however you might like to think of it. Jesus also taught us as believers to pray classically in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Now, you might have thought in the past, well, what is that about? I mean, what, why do I pray that in the Lord's Prayer? It's exactly rooted in Exodus 16. It's exactly rooted in this rightly appropriated by our Lord story from Exodus 16, from the Old Testament, Pentateuch. Give us our daily food or our need. The Apostle Peter speaks of this concept in another place when he exhorts believers to cast every single care on God because why? Because he cares for you. There's this learning to lean on Jesus. There's this learning to cast your cares on you and taste on him and seeing that he cares for you, learning to taste and see that the Lord is good and that he has concern for you, that he cares for you. That sounds kind of strange, really, in light of how I started the sermon. That God 
does not exist, firstly, to serve you, but you exist to serve God. That's the point of the exodus, and that's the point of your exodus from sin. Not that he exists to serve you, but that you exist to serve. But God does serve us. He served them breakfast. We were prepping, one of our members of our sermon prep team said, they no sooner get out of the oasis provided at Elam, where poison water was made sweet, and they grumble against Moses in mass, asking, So, Moses, what's for breakfast? <laughs> I mean, they're worried about breakfast. They're worried about food. They're worried about the daily needs. And, and they are real needs, aren't they? I mean, we have real daily needs that we can take to the Lord. But at the very same time, we don't want to degenerate into being grumblers. We want to pray and say, God, please give us this day our daily bread. Struggling to figure out how to apply this aspect of this text, I consulted with Tim Chester in his book, Exodus for You, and he gave some helpful examples. He talked about Brian and Claire and a little girl. So I'm going to just share some examples he gave from his congregation. They won't be so directly personal here, although we could come up with our own, and I hope you'll think about it too. He said of the real daily needs, he said there's a man named Brian, 35 years old, single, longs to be married, and he could become bitter because his life is not the life he would have chosen. He could become desperate and look for romance with a non-Christian or turn to sinful images. Or instead he could say, I have the Lord, my God. I have forgiveness, adoption, and community in him, and that's enough. And he spoke of Claire. And I suppose a younger person could, could hear that just the same as the 35-year-old. What about Claire? He said, Claire's husband has cancer. Her days stitched between slowly waiting by hospital beds and rusting, rushing after her children. With an uncertain future, she feels lonely and defeated by the practicalities of everyday care. Her heart is breaking. She feels overwhelmed. This isn't what she dreamed of. And she asks, how can this be? And she learns to say, I have the Lord. I'm never alone. He gives me grace for today. This is enough. There was a young girl in the church that was diagnosed with a brain tumor on a Tuesday. And she spent nine hours in surgery on a Wednesday. Pastor Tim noted, now she is in the midst of a year-long process of treatment. I talked with her parents, and it was so helpful to hear them say, we don't have to worry about how we will cope in three months' time. We can take it one day at a time. We trust God for this day, and we will trust that he will enable us to trust him tomorrow, and the next tomorrow, and the next tomorrow. He urged, don't worry how you would cope if. Don't play scenarios. You're not given grace for the ifs and the maybes. You're given grace for today he noted. You will have the grace for the next day when it comes, and it will not come until tomorrow. Look not to your version of the jar of manna when you go to bed each night and tell yourself you have gained what you need. Look instead to the providing God and tell him you trust him to give you what you need for the day. Now, there should be a disclaimer offered here. There are biblical lessons about advanced planning. There are. That's not the point of Exodus 16, 13, and 21. 
And so I'm not going to talk about advanced planning today. I'm talking about give us this day our daily bread. And we need to learn to lean on the Lord each day. The emphasis is on our need for daily grace. Supernaturally, morning by morning, these people of God saw supernaturally provided manna come down from heaven to feed them. A sweet-like wafer, food, for a couple million people. God just did it. Kind of like he just, under the guidance of Elisha, filled some borrowed jars with oil so she could figure out how to keep her kids. She just did it. We're taught today that the Lord teaches us to pray. Not give us this day tomorrow's bread, but give us our daily bread. And sometimes this just has to be enough. It just has to be enough. Very often it does. Their grumbling was turned to gathering. Gathering up food. And manna, this, this word in Hebrew, is thought to be a question. What is this? What is this? What is, I don't even know what this is. And so they, they asked their leader, Moses, they said, what, what is this? And they're instructed on what it is. It's a gift from God. It's the grace for the day. And they come to know more of God as a provider, as we do as well. They heard about him in the burning bush, and now they're looking to the Lord, their personal God, the only God who gives them this sustenance. They, a couple of observations may be in order here. This is, um, as one of our friends said, this is not frosted flakes from heaven dropping in to their mouths with them just laying in their tent bed. They actually had to get up and go gather it. They had to go to work. And so I think there is very likely an admonition here for kind of a Second Thessalonians type word against the idol. If you have a tendency to grumble about your word, if no job's ever good enough for you, if you're always looking to the next one and re-envisioning the last one, if you have an issue with setting your hand to your work and gathering, so to speak, not necessarily for bread, but for the currency that helps you purchase bread. If you struggle with this contentment, perhaps there is a spiritual issue that lies underneath, and you need Exodus 16 and God's grace to help you sort through it. Every morning, go to the Lord and do all of your work as unto the Lord, Jesus Christ himself, Colossians 3.23 says. And that will help stifle grumbling and get you to gathering. There just won't be time for it. You know, work's not bad. We shouldn't envision it as bad. Work is frustrated by sin. It is. And that's what makes work frustrating is, is the sin-filled world that we lived in. We're, we're each trying to figure out how to get along in a world filled with sin. But work's not bad, and it never has been. It was good in creation, and I presume it'll be, it'll be good in the new creation. We're not idle any more than we're to be idolaters. We're supposed to be people that work, that create that provide, that sustain, but with the strength of God and the provision of God, he calls us to, to partner in this, to gather what he's given. And when they tried to circumvent daily trust in the provision of the Lord by hoarding selfishly, God made the bread get maggots in it and stink like the plague that went on Egypt. God had told his people he would not put the plagues on them corporately like he did the Egyptians, unless they failed to listen to the voice of the Lord. And then they would receive his corporate chastening. That was the last, next to last verse in Exodus 15. 
And so the text records a verse in Exodus 16, verse 18, verse worth considering. Look at Exodus 16, 18. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. You know, the Apostle Paul, knowing his Old Testament, taught the church assembly through 2 Corinthians chapter 8 using exactly this story. He taught sacrifice over selfishness amongst churches. He talked about church relations. He taught the funding of missions. And I want you to hear this text, but, but hear this first. We must take more seriously our call corporately to fund missions. We must. We must survey the land and support church planting, belief-confessing, like-minded, lifelong sacrificers on the missions front in hard-to-reach places. Why must we do this? Because the Bible says, unto whom much is given, much is expected. And Paul cares about mission support as well as famine support to believers in his writings, such as how he urges the blessing of sacrificial giving and the curse of not sharing and hoarding by appropriating Exodus 18, 16, 18 in 2 Corinthians 8, 15. Hear it, hear it now. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 8, 13 to 15. That's enough context. It says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Let the water of resources flow through you like a fresh river instead of hoarding up the water of resources like a stagnant pond. The first fruits giving principle helps us here to give to the Lord an offering off the top, what the ancients called a tithe or a tenth part of their income. We might not gather bread, but we gather currency with which to buy food. And there's a principle here. Sacrificial sharing is the way of our Lord. For God so loved us that he gave and we should too. In your sanctification, God moves you from grumbling to gathering and from gathering to giving, from selfishness to sacrifice, and then finally, from laziness to rest. That's going to be our third and final point today. So let's recap. You need to come to God with your sin, and you need to come to God every day for your needs, and you need to come to God specifically on the Lord's Day Sunday with his people. Now, I just previously said that the underlying issue here is laziness versus rest. And it would be natural for you to ask at this point in the sermon, listening, thinking about the verses, how do I get to talking about laziness in light of the Sabbath? How is laziness, how is it lazy to not take a Sabbath day's rest? That seems antithetical, doesn't it? 
Well, it's because there is extra work required, in this case, on the sixth day, and by extension on other days, that they might be then able to take the Sabbath. They had to so structure their priorities as to accept the gift God had given them in commanding Sabbath. Consider verse 22 in Exodus 16. The verse says, On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread. That's twice as much gathering. That's twice as much work. Two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day, a solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. This is exactly the opposite logic that they had on the other days. This time it's going to keep. This time it's going to be okay to eat it. But what is he teaching them here? He's teaching them the command and not just the principle of the Sabbath. They had to overcome laziness and gather twice as much on the sixth day before the seventh. It was two liters. Now it would be four. And God would make sure that this didn't rot and stink because it was holy and it was to be wholly set apart for a solemn Sabbath day's rest where they would not do ordinary work. Now I want to encourage you because you're here. And you say, that seems like low-hanging fruit, Pastor Matt. And it is, but it's not. Because I've sat where you sat, and I sit where you sit. I will next Sunday when I'm not preaching. And I'll hear the word preached and taught to me. And it'll be hard for me to get me and my family here in one piece too. Just like it is for yours. It'll be hard to set aside a few hours of a morning, let alone a whole day, to obey the, the command of the Lord to observe a Sabbath. But I think it's instructive for us to consider what's at bottom with this command in the remaining time that we have together today in this sermon. As I've been studying Scripture and church history, like a Berean trying to learn and grow, I myself am increasingly convinced of the veracity of the Sabbath command for the church today. I'm learning to see it as a gift and I'm hoping to grow in it even as I've been among the chief of sinners in this manner at times. The Baptist Confession summarizes this truth for us that on the first day rather than the seventh day to our week, we are to set aside the Lord's Day as a Sabbath. And here's how, they, how the, the Confession summarizes it. I want to read it to you. It's chapter 22. It's the last two stanzas, stanzas of the Confession in chapter 22, the Christian Sabbath is to be kept holy. It is the law of nature that in general a portion of time specified by God should be set apart for the worship of God. So by his word, in a positive, moral, and perpetual command that obligates everyone in every age, he has specifically appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy to him. From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, the appointed day was the last day of the week. After the resurrection of Christ, it was changed to the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. This day is to be kept to the end of the age as the Christian Sabbath, since the observation of the last day of the week has been abolished. And now chapter 22, the eighth section within the confession says this, The Sabbath is to be kept holy to the Lord when people have first prepared their hearts appropriately and arranged their everyday affairs in advance. 
like four instead of two leaders gathered the day before. Then they observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their secular employment and recreation. Not only that, but they also fill the whole time with public and private acts of worship and the duties of necessity and mercy. I'm struck that we see here, and that was in quote, by the way, I'm struck that we see here a Sabbath reminder command rooted in Genesis 2 before the fall and an extra special ticked-off talk, kind of a ticked-off talk from the present God to the assembled congregation before they even get to Mount Sinai and receive the Ten Commandments and the Fourth Commandment to honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. Why? Well, for emphasis, for one. But why else? Well, more broadly, God's commandments are good for you. They're not bad. The fact that you exist for God, primarily, is good for you. It's good for me. And the commands start with the view that God existed prior to you and that you exist for God. Then quickly we find our joy, our joy in experiencing that God knows better than I do how I should order my affairs. This is really a good summary of sanctification now, isn't it? Learning that God knows better than I do how I should order my affairs. Look at verse 29 again in your Bible, Exodus chapter 16, verse 29. So incredibly helpful. It says, with an exclamation mark, See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. It's not something He's taken from you. It's a generous gift. See, 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 He's given this to you. And then look at verse 30. If you'll, if you'll hear it, listen to this, this, this phrase. So the people rested. They rested. I wonder if you need to rest. Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How has he given us rest? Well, he's granted us a command. Come out of our sin and walk with him as his people, obeying his ways, not only for his glory, but for our good. It was St. Francis that said, the heart is restless until it rests in thee. It was Pascal that said, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. God speaks into things that really matter in our lives, like attitudes of grumbling or finances of sacrificing and allocating or work patterns like taking one off out of seven. He's getting into the nitty-gritty of life with commands like this, and it makes us uncomfortable, but it provides the most opportunity for growth. Far from irrelevant, God is relevant to your entire life. You'll have to make sacrifices and There'll be worldly opportunities that you won't be able to immediately seize if you're going to structure your week around the Lord's Day to make every effort to set aside the day. But what a gift. God's commands always are. They're given to you. See? See? And this is a testimony that needs to be passed on to the next generation and the generation after that. Just, just like Moses' jar in verses 33 and 34. You can do no better for your children than for them to witness you seeking your sanctification before God right there in their visible sight. You can do no better. 
And children, hear me. Pay attention to this testimony. You are not guaranteed many days, but this day is the day of salvation. Won't you trust Christ? I mean, maybe you've heard it 120 times or more. You've heard it so many times, it just becomes old hat until today. And the Lord opens your eyes to see, your ears to hear, the glorious riches that you have provided in Christ. What joy it would be for your testimony to become like theirs. The trust in Jesus today. Wouldn't you? And would you tell somebody that you have that we might celebrate with you your living witness to the goodness of God as your God, as the provider of your daily need, as the instructor of your schedule and your life. We see in our daily bread the content of our lives affected, but we see in this weekly Sabbath the very structure of our lives affected. God gets the gospel into the joints and the marrow of our body and your body in both content and structure. We see that also reflected in our religious corporate worship services. Structure and content, both ministering to us the gospel as if one without the other works. As if flesh works without bones or bones without flesh. This is structural, that is the Sabbath, and it really does matter. One author wrote about this on the blessing of rest. Listen to this quote. Americans tend to want their reformations the same way they want their coffee. Hot and now. When we decide what we want, we scramble to get it. Look around for a moment at life in contemporary America. In every direction, we see a full tilt, frenetic pace of life, meaning that everyone is on the go. And when we get wherever it is we are going, we find the place open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If we were to hit the freeway at four in the morning, we would not find ourselves alone. A multitude of other early risers would all be out going somewhere important. Americans are workers. And of course, that's not a bad thing in itself. Work is necessary and good. Think of gathering bread or getting up to go to work in the morning without grumbling, all part of this sermon. But to this point, our third point, our problem is that work, the work we do, is not undergirded by any meaningful sense of rest. The end result of this attitude is a culture-wide frazzle, frazzled tangle of stressed-out nerve endings. And when we react to frazzle, we too often do so in a frazzled way. When we respond to failures, whether that's in the family or the school or the church or the health or the relationships or the friends or life, we do so in a way that is a pale shadow of that failure instead of providing a genuine alternative. Although this may sound odd to modern ears, the reason we have drifted into this frantic lifestyle is largely theological. We do not comprehend physical rest because we lack spiritual rest. And we have no spiritual rest because we do not understand afresh that salvation is by grace and not of works. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And ironically, that's where work finds its most meaning. Ephesians 2, 10. Created for good works. 
in light of God's grace, a wonderful truth built into the structure of the first day of the week being a graceful rest. The Bible portrays salvation in terms of complete rest. Hebrews 4.9 says, So then there remains, there remains a Sabbath rest for we the people of God. And this reminds us that this rest is a propellant in this life for things to come. Eternal rest from sin that's been frustrated by work or from selfishness and lack and from a frenetic pace of life that leads you ever seeking but never getting filled up. Jesus certainly spiritualized Exodus 16 himself in the sixth chapter of John when he says, I am the bread of life. Your ultimate filling comes from the sweet bread of Christ. May we taste it together when we take the Lord's Supper next Sunday. Amen? I say to you, beloved church, come near to God through all the means that he's provided for you. Come near to God. The Bible says in New Testament parlance in James chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, draw near to God. And the verses are wonderful as they go on. John 4, 8 may say, draw near to God, but then it says, he will draw near to you. And then it says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The path to such joy is the the gloom and the weeping of realizing that we have been an offense to God and we've created the stench of the maggots in our bread by not paying attention to His commands. And for joy, today, we learn through this word, a hard word, but a sweet word, we learn today to come near to God with our sin every single day and especially on Sunday. And if you slowly learn to live like you exist for God, then you can find joy in knowing that the God of the universe is pleased to improve your existence for his own glory and the fame of his own name. Let's take a little less than a minute of silence.